All right, well, this is uh, week one of a seven-week series on Hebrews chapter 11. If you're in the wrong room, uh, you got to stay. Sorry. We're going to do uh, seven different weeks. We're going to look at seven different characters, and we'll kind of get into that in a minute. And we're going to, I'm going to tag team this with Logan. Logan Reynolds is going to teach uh, next week, and we're going to switch off week after week. And so, uh, you'll get to hear Logan teach for the first time. So I think he's going to do a great job. Um, on your table is the insert for your notebook. We didn't give you notebooks because we already gave you lots of notebooks. So go bring back an old notebook and put this in it. But this has everything you're going to need for this series. It's got a uh, blog that I did on Hebrews chapter 11 that you can read. There's a place for you to take notes. The only thing that's going to be different in this series is there's not going to be anything on the screens for you to uh, copy. And some of you are going to go nuts. You're going to ask me for handouts. I didn't do you a handout. Uh, we're trying to do this kind of little streamline. So just, you're just going to have to take notes or pick up the CD next week. And then also in the middle of the table is, are, are the discussion questions for this week. There is going to be discussion time. And we don't really have table shepherds. We gave the table shepherds off. So somebody's going to have to be the designated leader of the table. Uh, don't fight over it. Just uh, whoever has the most testosterone, you be the leader. Um, and that'll happen uh, a little bit later. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for these men and thank you for the opportunity to study your word together. And I just pray that over the next seven weeks as we unpack this chapter, that it would come alive for every one of us. And most especially, Father, that the topic of faith would become uh, much more than just academic, that it would be something that is real and alive in our lives, and that we would walk away knowing more about faith and living by faith than we ever have before. We love you. We thank you for being here. Thank you for the guys that, that cooked the hamburgers and made the food preparation possible, and uh, we just... Can't thank you enough for all that you do for us, and we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, I think most of you know I was uh, in Ethiopia for about 14 days, flew over there, met my wife who was doing work, and uh, spoke to pastors, and we got back on Monday. I'm still suffering jet lag, um, so if I fall asleep in the middle of this, that's the reason. It's not you, but... Uh, it's, we're going to bed about eight, waking up at two, and uh, can't go back to sleep. So it's uh, fun to go, better to get back. I'm glad I live here. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, I hope you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11. This is where we're going to be for seven weeks looking at the book of Hebrews, but one chapter in the book of Hebrews. And uh, this is that great hall of faith. Uh, it's a great, great chapter that has uh, a variety of characters, Old Testament characters, that uh, show us faith. And so uh, what I want to do, faith is my word for this year, 2016. Uh, when the year started, I really just picked that word as the word I want to study and I want to know more about what faith really means and how to apply it in my life. And so this is a really kind of a fun topic for me, and it's a fun chapter to unpack. So we're going to be looking at it over the next weeks, and we're going to take seven of the characters. Uh, we're going to take one of them tonight, and then we'll do six more in a row. We're not going to do all the characters in the chapter because we just didn't have enough weeks to make it happen. But every week, bring your Bible, and we're just going to unpack this together. And the reason I didn't want to do a, a PowerPoint or have anything on the screen is I just want to look at the Bible together. I want us to open the Bible, look at it, study it, and see what it has to say. And the neat thing about Hebrews chapter 11 is it's going to force us to go back into the Old Testament because all of these characters are Old Testament characters, and Hebrews doesn't tell you enough about them to understand really the context, so we have to go back into the Old Testament to really figure out, okay, how did they live by faith, and how did their lives exhibit faith? So tonight, I want to do a brief introduction and kind of talk about what, what is faith. Um, Faith is a word we throw around pretty loosey-goosey as Christians. Uh, we say we're a people of faith. Uh, we say I was saved by faith. Um, we talk a lot about faith. But my contention is that I don't know that we necessarily know what faith really is. Um, we know that we're saved by faith. Uh, the scriptures tell us we're to walk by faith, live by faith. But do we really understand 
the role that faith plays, not just in our salvation, but in our entire walk as Christians. And it does play a role in every aspect of our lives as Christians, not just at the point of salvation. And so that's what's so uh, kind of incredible about this particular chapter is it's going to unpack, give us a definition or a description of what faith is, and then it's going to give us these lives as illustrations of faith. And so 19 different times in this chapter alone, it says, by faith, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Moses, by faith, Enoch, by faith, Abel. Over and over again, it talks about by faith, they did X. And so we want to figure out, okay, what, what does that mean? What does it mean to live by faith, act by faith, live your life by faith? Because that's what we've been called to do. Now, it's, it's interesting. If you look at uh, the book of James, he makes a, a kind of an interesting statement about faith. He says, you say you have faith. You remember the book of James is all about faith and works, um, that they go hand in hand. You can't say you have faith and it not show up in your works. And he says, you say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. This is from the New Living Translation. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. So here's James saying that demons believe, have faith. They believe in Jesus. Uh, as a matter of fact, on several occasions, when they would see Jesus, they would claim there's, there's the son of God. What are you going to do to us? They feared him. They knew him. They knew who he was. There was no doubt in their mind he was the son of God, but they didn't have saving faith. Uh, they didn't look to Jesus as somebody that they would submit to, but they did believe in him. And that's why James says, even the demons believe. So if you say you believe, great, but is that enough? Is that the kind, is that the kind of faith God's looking for in you and I? You know, Paul says that we're saved through faith as, as a means of or by means of faith. That's how we're saved. He says, by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that nobody can boast. So we are saved through as a result of faith. It's, it's essential to my salvation, your salvation. Anybody who wants to come to Christ can only do so how? Through faith, belief. Belief in who he is, belief in what he has done on the cross. Um, and it's given to us as a grace gift. You know, one of the interesting things about faith, the more I study it, the more I realize that it's not something I conjure up. It's not a commodity. Uh, it's not like a set of golf clubs. It's not like cash. It's, faith is something that is even in and of itself given to us by God to have faith to believe. And it's not something, again, that I make up, you make up, we strive to develop, but it's a gift of God to even be able to believe in the gift of his son. So faith, you know, what is it? What do we do with it? And one of the interesting things about faith as you study the New Testament, especially the writings of Paul, is he says we're to live by faith. So we're saved through faith and we're to live by faith. Over and over again, he talks about living by faith. And so what's important in that is that I'm saved by faith, but is that enough? Is that the end of it? And, and I believe in the church today, there are a lot of people who have expressed faith in Jesus Christ. They say, he's my Lord, he's my savior, but they don't live their lives by faith. So they've come to faith, they've been saved, but they don't live like they're saved. And, and you know people like that. You've probably been that person on more than one occasion where faith didn't really show up in your daily life. You accepted Christ, you walked the aisle, you did whatever your church or denomination required you to do to exhibit faith, but then you didn't live by faith for long periods of time. And that's why Paul says it's, we're to walk by faith. We're to live our lives. That, that word is peripateo in the Greek, and it literally means to live your life, walk, Take every step of your life by faith. And that's where Hebrews chapter 11 is going to impact every one of us in the room tonight. Because that's where I think we struggle. It's, it's fairly easy for us to come to faith in Christ by placing our faith in Christ because we know we can't earn our way. We can't really do enough good works to get God to love us and, and forgive us. And so we're okay with placing our faith in Christ as our Savior, 
But where we struggle is living by faith, conducting our lives according to faith. And, and it should impact every area of my life and your life. It's not just, again, at salvation, but it's every day of my life. It should be a way of life to live by faith. And again, that's where sometimes we struggle, sometimes we bog down, and we don't really know what that looks like. You know, I, I, I tell you guys all the time about my dad who died uh, two years ago now. Um, my dad was a man of faith. My dad um, prayed constantly. He expected great things from God. He had a ministry that he never, um, he never charged anybody for what he did. He taught people how to pray. And he would travel all around the world and he would conduct prayer seminars in churches and teach their people how to pray. And he never charged them anything. And, and the thing that drove me crazy, because in those days I was still in advertising and, and I, I went to my dad one day and I said, you know, why don't you let me do you a logo? And he goes, I don't need a logo. I said, well, let me do you a brochure. I don't need a brochure. I said, dad, you got to have a brochure. How are you going to promote your ministry? And he goes, I'm not going to promote my ministry. I said, dad, that doesn't make any sense. How's anybody going to know about your ministry if you don't promote it? He goes, God's going to promote it. And, you know, I, I didn't laugh in his face, but, you know, inwardly I'm like, Dad, you don't know anything about marketing. You know, God's not into marketing. Well, for 30 plus years, my dad had a ministry that took him all over the world, and he never had a brochure, he never had a logo, and he never charged, and God took care of him. It, they never were in need. As a matter of fact, my dad gave away almost everything that he was ever given. If a, if a church gave him money as a love offering, you know, he was Southern Baptist, that's what they do. He would get a love offering and he'd give it back to the church. And as a kid, and even as a young adult, I, I struggled with that going, dad, what are you doing? How are you going to live if you keep giving the money back? And he goes, God will take care of me. So I watched my dad live by faith and I saw it work but it didn't come quite so easy for me to live that way, to live by faith, to trust God. And yet that is what the seven characters we're going to look at are going to show you and I is that by faith, they live their lives. And they did things that were pretty incredible that we, we're going to look at and go, man, I don't know if I could have done that. Think about this. Think about one of the characters we're going to look at is Noah. Noah has always blown my mind because what did Noah get asked to do by God? build a boat. Now you and I sit there and go, well, I've never built a boat, but I bet I could if I had to. He didn't even know what a boat was because there were no boats. Why? Because there was no body of water to put a boat. At that time, there was really no place for him to sail a boat, even if he had one. And so God asked him to build something he's never seen before. And not just a rowboat, a boat big enough to hold all of those animals. And what I love about the story when we get into it is, is he's, it's like he doesn't even argue. He says, go build me a, a boat. Okay. I mean, I would have been arguing big time. I, I, been going, I don't even know what that is. Well, I'll give you plans. What am I going to do with it? You know, and then go fill it with animals. Really? God, have you lost your mind? But see, that's what faith is. Faith is living your life, trusting what God says, even though you don't understand it, that you don't get it. And one of the things about faith that I think is missing in my life too often, and it's probably true in your life, is the idea that faith requires endurance. You know, I came to faith at seven. Um, really wasn't that hard. The hardest part was just getting my can out of the pew and into the aisle to walk down because I grew up Southern Baptist and that's what we do. And getting up to do it was the hardest thing. But once I did it, it really wasn't that hard. I was relieved. I was glad I did it. But from seven to now 61, the hardest part has been living my life by faith. Every day, every step of the way. And far too often I have failed at that and I've struggled with it. And yet really what this chapter is going to tell us is that's how we should live by faith. Like these individuals, like Moses, like Noah, like Abraham, like Sarah, by faith. 
every day of our lives. I love what Hebrews chapter 10, which is kind of the connecting point to chapter 11, which is where we're going to be. Just look back at chapter 10, starting in verse 36. Listen to what he says. You have need of endurance. Now he's writing to Christians and he says, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Now, what is the will of God? It's it's living your life, coming to Christ, living your life, waiting for the return of his son, and you receive what is promised. What's been promised? Well, what has been promised is eternity, the culmination of our salvation, our glorification. So he says, you got to have endurance because it's not going to be easy. For some of us, it's going to last longer than others. But he says, you got to endure. Then he goes on, he says, for yet a little while on the coming... The coming one will come and will not delay, speaking of Christ, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Those who know me, those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior, will live by faith. And this is, this is where it gets interesting. He says, if he shrinks back, and that word literally means to, to draw back, to um, cower, to be moving one direction and then just to draw back, to kind of give up. He says, if... If he draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now, I believe, and we as a church believe, that you cannot lose your salvation. And um, I particularly love that doctrine. Because there have been plenty of times in my life where I should have lost my salvation. Because if I was God, I'd have gone, you're done. You, you, this time you went over the edge. You've screwed it up big time. But I, I can't lose my salvation. So he's, I don't think he's teaching you can lose your salvation. I think what he's saying is if you don't remain in faith, if you shrink back, you're, you've never really were saved. You, you've walked away from something that you never really had. Because listen to what he says in verse 39. He says, but we, speaking of the believers he's writing to, we are not of those who shrink back. We don't shrink back. We don't walk away. We don't give up. We don't cower. He says, we're not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So what he's telling you and I is that faith, the kind of faith that you and I have or should have if we placed our faith in Christ is the kind of faith that lasts, it endures, it will keep us until the end. Now that doesn't mean you and I are going to have bad days where maybe we don't follow him quite like we should, where we stumble, where we have moments of dryness in our life spiritually. But when he says to shrink back, it literally means to, to just pull away and go, go the other direction. But the cool thing is, he says, we're not those kind of people. We have faith. We have faith that will last. And it will last until the righteous one comes back. Until Jesus Christ returns. And that should give you hope. That should give you some comfort that the kind of faith you have is an enduring faith. But you will have to endure. You'll have to go through moments of trials and testing and doubt. Just like Abraham did. You know, Abraham was called a friend of God. Um, Abraham in this chapter is going to be told, told to us as a man who had faith, and it never wavered. And I always struggle with that because I look at Abraham and I read his life and I go, yeah, he did. As a matter of fact, he wavered quite a bit. It seems like he had a lot of doubts. And, you know, I love the story of Abraham and his wife, you know, the fact that they were old. And she was barren, and God says, I'm, I'm going to bless you and make you a, a father of a multitude of nations. And he's sitting there going, well, I'm old, she's barren, how in the world that's, that's going to happen? I'm not really sure. And then Sarah comes to him one day, you remember that story? It's my favorite story in the Bible, because my man. His wife comes to him and says, hey, I got a great idea. I'm barren, you're old. Why don't you go into my handmaiden and have a son by her? And And Abraham goes, honey, I, I couldn't do that. There's just no way I could do that. That's just, it's not right. Is that what he did? 
No, he was like, man, bring her in. How many handmaidens do you have, honey? He, he bought into it hook, line, and sinker and has a son buyer, and God says, that ain't the way we're going to do it. See, he, he struggled, but what dawned on me as I have studied that passage is, it wasn't a matter that he didn't have faith. Why did he go into the handmaiden of his wife? To have a son to fulfill the promise that God had made. He believed God was going to fulfill the promise. He just thought God needed his help. He had faith. He just thought God needed his assistance. All along the way, he kept believing. And that's what we'll see when we look at his life. He had endurance. Every one of these characters had some form of endurance because faith is a lifelong commitment. And what I want to challenge you, just like I want to challenge, challenge me, is that if, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and he is your savior and you know you're going to spend eternity in heaven, I am tickled to death at that prospect for you. But you know what? You're not in heaven. I'm not in heaven. I'm here and I've been called and you've been called to live by faith right here and now. Live by faith every step of the way. It's got to last. And it's got to be a, a kind of faith that makes a difference in the way you live your life compared to everyone else around you and, and not to shrink back. Because if you shrink back, you really don't have faith. You, you really don't believe in what he's promised. And there are people who walk away from the good news of Jesus Christ every day, who walk away from the church and walk away from their supposed relationship with God because their faith just isn't lasting. It never was a lasting faith. But if your faith is true, it will last. And it will last an eternity. And it will get you to eternity. So look at verse 1 of chapter 11. And this is his description of faith. It's really not a definition, technically. Uh, it's more of a, just a description. But listen to what he says. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. Pretty succinct, pretty simple. It's got two kind of matching statements. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So he's going he's to tell us about faith and then he's going to describe it by using these characters. And, and I love how the New Living Translation translates that verse. It says, faith shows the reality of what we hope for and it is the evidence of things we can't see. It shows the reality of the things we hope for. And there's a lot of things we hope for as Christians, much of which we can't see. It's not visible to us. And, and because we can't see so much of what God has promised, we have to hope for it and we have to somehow have evidence of it. You've never seen heaven, right? You've probably heard sermons on heaven and it almost made you not want to go there because it sounds really boring. I mean, I love the idea that it's got streets of gold, but who, who needs it? It's, it's, you're not going to need money, so okay, streets of gold and people sitting on clouds playing harps, that's not really attractive to me. So I don't think it's biblical, but I've never seen heaven, but I hope in it because it's been promised to me. And so there's a whole lot about the Bible, there's a whole lot about our faith that we, we really can't see. And yet, what are we called to do? Believe in it, trust in it, hope for it. And so the, he gives us this definition, and it's got two parts. There's two words. The first is assurance, and your translation may be slightly different. It may be substance. The first one is assurance, and the other one is conviction. And those two words are really important as we look at this passage, because it's going to help us understand these characters as we look at their lives. He says, it's the assurance, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And that, that word is hypostasis is, is the Greek word. And it really has a multitude of meanings. It's a very complicated word for us to translate into English. That's why there's so many different variations in our translations. It can mean substance. It can mean foundation. Um, it, it's, but it basically is something that has meat to it. Our faith is something that gives us assurance because it has a weight to it. 
It's like the foundation of a house. Everything rests on that foundation. If you got a bad foundation, what do you got? You got a bad house. You got cracks in your walls. You got doors that don't shut because you got a bad foundation. And so the idea that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, everything we put our stock in when it comes to believing in Jesus Christ as Christians rests on faith, heaven, salvation, forgiveness, the grace of God, the mercy of God. It's all based on faith. It's, it's where we put our hope. And if we don't have faith, it's like a house without a foundation. It's going to get real shaky, especially when difficulty comes. But when we think about hope, um, our, our view of hope has very little um, certainty, especially when we use the word hope. You know, how, how do we use the word hope? Well, I hope the Cowboys you know, make it to the playoffs. What are you really saying when you say that? I really don't think the Cowboys are going to make the playoffs. Jesus is going to come back before the Cowboys make the playoffs. Um, you hope, but there's not a whole lot of certainty. Man, I hope I win the lottery. You really don't think you're going to win the lottery. So there's a lot of uncertainty. When we use the word hope, it, it's, it's got this idea of wishful thinking, right? Man, I hope one day my kids obey me. You know, I hope one day, you know, my wife still thinks I'm handsome even when I'm not, you know, it's wishful thinking. Um, I hope one day, you know, I make a million dollars. Probably ain't going to happen. Maybe some of you had, but for most of us, it's just wishful thinking. That is not the concept of faith in the Bible. It's got a certainty about it. It's got an assurance. It's got a foundation. It's something that we can sink our teeth into. But we, what we do is we take our idea of hope and the uncertainty associated with it, and we apply that to faith. And, and it becomes kind of a nebulous thing. You know, I, yeah, I got faith, but it, it, I'm just not sure. I think I'm going to heaven. I hope I'm going to heaven. And man, I hope by the time the seven weeks is over, if that's one of your doubts, if that's something you don't have a certainty about, I hope and pray that you do. If you doubt that God loves you, that somehow you don't deserve his love, I hope by the time we're done, your faith is great enough to where you never doubt that again, no matter what you do, that he loves you. He sent his son to die for you. See, faith should be something that we can sink our teeth into because it's God-focused. And, and what's key about this whole chapter is that faith is always God-focused and it's always future-oriented. Always. Everything about faith is future-oriented. So even when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, what's the basis of that? That he's going to forgive your sins, that he's going to keep you from spending eternity in hell, and you're going to spend eternity with him in heaven. It's got a future aspect to it. It's always God-focused and future-oriented. And if we forget that, it doesn't make any sense. So faith, at the end of the day, has its roots in what? The faithfulness of God. So when we use the word faith, you, you've got to always, there's an object. What's your faith in? Who is your faith in? Well, as Christians, we put our faith in Christ. Ultimately, we put our faith in God because God sent his son to die on the cross for my sins and your sins. So I'm putting my faith in the fact that he says, if you do that, what will happen? You will be saved. Your sins will be forgiven. You will be redeemed. You will be deemed righteous in God's eyes. See, that's all based on faith, right? Every guy in the room, and myself included, who has placed their faith in Christ has been told by God that I now see you as what? Righteous. Because of you? No, because of Jesus Christ. How many of us in the room see ourselves as totally righteous? And if you raise your hand, I'll slap you. None of us is, is completely righteous in and of ourselves, right? I still lust. I still commit sins. You know, we, we had a 17-hour flight uh, Monday coming back from Dubai. And uh, I don't particularly like airplanes to begin with, but I certainly don't like airplanes when they take 17 hours. And before the flight started, they had double booked our seats, my wife and I. And um, 
they came up and said, well, we're going to move one of you to first class. And I mean, before I could even open my mouth, my wife was out of the seat and up the aisle. I'm a, I thought it was the rapture. You know, she's like, and she, she gets halfway up the aisle and she turns, she goes, is it okay? <laughs> what am I going to do? You know, so she's gone and she's like with a reclining seat and the wine and, you know, they're plop, plopping grapes in her mouth. And I'm sitting by the window and my two seatmates show up. Now, this plane was full of people from Ethiopia. And these were two young girls who had never flown before. And they were scared out of their wits. And um, they also brought their own food. I am not a big fan of Ethiopian food, and I just spent 14 days eating it. And, and I, didn't want, I, I, I didn't want to smell it ever again. And so these two girls sit down, sweet as they can be, both Muslim, and um, they started eating their food. And it got to me. And I got really angry. How come I'm back here? How come my wife got... And I, and I got angry at them. Like, how dare you bring food on the plane? They're going to feed you. And then they couldn't work the TV. And they wouldn't let me help them because I'm not Muslim. And, and it was driving... For 17 hours. I was not a Christian by the time it ended. <laughs> So I know I can be unrighteous. I know you can be unrighteous. And yet, what do I have faith in? That God sees me as righteous in spite of me. And sometimes it's hard for me to believe that he would look at me and see me as righteous when I can't look at me and see me as righteous. So everything about faith has to do with the faithfulness of God. It's not about you. It's about him. And again, we're going to see that in every character that we look at in this, this chapter as we go through it. So faith has to do with God. Faith has to do with the future. Faith has to do with circumstances. And sometimes you and I have to put our faith in circumstances, especially when circumstances aren't going well. And we have to believe. That's the greatest test, test of your faith and my faith is when things go south, right? When your kids aren't doing what you want them to do. When you're your uh, marriage maybe isn't going so well, or your job is going south, or you lost your job, or maybe it's your health, and you have to have faith that God is aware and knows what he's doing, and your circumstances are shouting something completely different. And yet, what are we called to do? By faith, live our lives. Keep trusting. Keep believing. Keep looking to him. Focusing on the future because he's not done yet. And these circumstances won't last forever. Now, they may get worse, right? They could get worse before they get better. But you have to keep believing that, A, he knows, he's aware, he's not up in heaven, oblivious. He's not wringing his hand going, how did that happen? He knows what's happening in your life. He loves you. He's got a plan for you. And the ultimate plan for you is your, what? Future glorification. And so, as Paul says, we can suffer a little trouble here because we know what's coming. But it takes what? It takes faith. It takes belief. It takes trust. So what are some things you and I have faith in or hope in? Well, we hope in the return of Christ, right? I hope you hope, want Christ to return. I remember as a kid, my dad used to say all the time, uh, yay, Lord Jesus, come. And as a kid, I'd go, wait a minute, not yet. Especially when I got to be a teenager. I was like, man, I got some living to do. You know, I've, I've, I've said no to a lot of things I want to say yes to. And one of them is female. And so, Lord, don't rush. Don't hurry. Don't listen to my dad. But the older I've gotten, guess what I say all the time? Yay, Lord Jesus. I, I said it multiple times in the airplane. <laughs> um, Yay, Lord Jesus, come. Take me home. But see, if you, if you don't want that to happen, you're not going to wish it to happen. You're not going to hope for it to happen. But you hopefully hope in the return of Christ. You hope for the resurrection, that we're going to have resurrected bodies, that somehow this thing is going to get replaced by something a whole lot better. You hope for your future glorification. Because wouldn't it be sad if we've been through this whole thing and we've put our faith in Christ and we 
we uh, have salvation, we've had our sins forgiven, but there is no glorification. We don't get to spend eternity with him. We just, you know, Paul said that that's like the saddest thing and we should be pitied of all people is there, if there is no resurrection. If Jesus didn't resurrect, we ain't going to resurrect. And so yet, I hope in it. I'm counting on it. And one day I hope to reign with him. See, there's a whole lot that you and I hope in and that, that requires faith in my life and in your life. And, and what Paul is, or not Paul, but the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell you and me is that I should have an assurance of those things. I should count on those things. I should believe those things. They're going to happen, and I don't doubt in it. And I've got my hope set on it. But I'm, I'm afraid, if you're like me, so much of your Christian life has been lived with not an assurance, but a doubt. Almost like the idea of hope. I hope I win the lottery. I hope I'm going to heaven. I hope he'll forgive me. I hope... And you don't have an assurance. And what this passage is going to tell you and me is we've got to live with assurance. We've been told that seeing is believing, right? I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. But that is exactly the opposite of what faith says. Faith is believing whether you see it or not. And every one of these characters is going to be put before us as an example of somebody who believed in something they couldn't see. Noah had to build an ark. He'd never seen one. He'd never seen a flood. He'd never seen global devastation, but he had to believe it was coming. Otherwise, he probably wouldn't have followed through with the plan. If he'd have said, hey, great idea, God, and you know, if I have a few minutes, I'll get started on that thing, but I really don't think it's going to happen, he would have died like everybody else. But he had to believe. He had to have faith in something he couldn't see. Same thing with Abraham. He had to believe in a city he never got to see. He got to believe that he was going to be the father of a nation he never got to witness. So every one of these characters had to have faith in something he couldn't see. And I struggle with believing in things I can't see. You do as well. I want evidence. I want proof. And that's what that second word really says. Faith is the conviction, the proof, the evidence of things I can't even see. See, your faith and my faith should give us a conviction and provide us with proof, though, even though I can't see heaven, you know what? I believe in it. Why? Because I tell you it exists. The Bible, you know, the Bible tells you it exists. No, God tells you it exists. Jesus Christ promises it exists. He goes, I go to prepare a way for you or a place for you. So it's faith in the word of God. And ultimately, everything we're going to talk about has to do with the Word of God. Do you trust the Word of God? Do you trust what He says? Do you trust the promises of God? Again, every, every one of the characters we're going to look at had to trust in something that God told them. I want you to do X. And they had to go, all right, I will. I'll do it. I believe you. I trust you. Even though I can't see it and it doesn't make sense and circumstances don't seem to appear like it's going to happen, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to believe. I'm going to trust. You know, if you're like me, you sit there and go, you know, it's really hard to believe in something you can't see, but yet every one of us believes in gravity, right? I think you believe in gravity. Why? Well, you experience the effects of it every day. You believe in, anybody ever seen oxygen? Except maybe in a diagram? You, you can't see it, but you know it exists. Why? Because you, you exist. You breathe it every day. And, and really, our faith should be the same thing. I should have a conviction of the things that God has promised because I'm experiencing them even now in my life. His faithfulness, his provision, that he's going to watch over me, that he's going to give me joy in the midst of sorrow. I've had that happen in my life, and it gives me increased faith that the other things he's promised are going to happen as well. See, it's, it's all about the unseen. It's all about the things I can't put my hands on. My, I can't touch it, but yet I, I believe in it because God's promised it. So what he's going to do is he's going to, in verse 3, he's going to kind of give us an example uh, to help us understand a little bit about the definition or the description in verse 1. So look at verse 3. What does he say? 
By faith, this is another one of those by faith statements. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So what's he saying? How do we know the universe was created by the word of God? Now, the, the world wants to tell us something else. The world wants to tell us that it wasn't created by God. It was created by the Big Bang or whatever. And that's their explanation. But as believers in Christ and believers in the word of God, how do we know the universe was created by God? I wasn't there. I'm old, but I wasn't there. Moses wrote Genesis and he wasn't there. Yet he describes that God made it. So how do we know? Well, because God says so. God, through the Holy Spirit, had Moses write Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. God created it. I wasn't there. I didn't see it. But I have, have to, by faith, believe because God said it. That's how it happened. And most of us in the room, I think, would say, yeah, I believe that. The question is, why do you believe that? Is it because you heard a sermon about it or because you think it's the right thing to believe because you're a Christian? Or is it because God says that's the way it is? Do you have a trust and a confidence in the word of God? You know, if you go on and read chapter two, it's going to give you even greater detail in Genesis about how God did it. There are those who struggle with a seven-day creation. I don't. There are people who struggle with, well, how did the mountains get, you know, fossils in them? And how did this happen? And how did how'd you get the Grand Canyon? Well, if, if, if God can create the universe, God can do it any way he wants. Why? Because he's God. And I think God can create age. If that's what God wants to do, God can. If God wanted to create the Grand Canyon, I think God could do that without having to have it done by a river. I don't know how it happened, but by faith, I believe it happened because that's what the Bible says. And so it's an idea of trusting the word of God. So when he says the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day, I believe what the Bible says. Now you may say, well, that's very simplistic. Well, you know, at the end of the day, you know what faith is? Highly simplistic. It's trusting what God says. And, and what's amazing about every one of the characters we're going to look at is not a single one of them argued with God. And you go, you know, God, I don't, I don't think that's how it happened. I don't think that's how you did it. Or I don't think a boat makes much sense. How about if we build a tower? What if I build a tower? Would that be, would that be okay, God? I don't really want to build a boat because I don't think it's going to flood. Not a single one of these characters argued with God. They took him at his word and they believed. Because taking God at his word is the essence of faith. Why did you place your faith in Jesus Christ? Because God said, if you do, you will be saved. At least I hope that's why you did it. You took God at his word. You, you placed your faith in Christ because he said, if you do, this is what will happen. And if you don't, this is what will happen. It was all based on faith. And so look at back at verse two. And he's going to tell us that about all these characters. There's nine of them. We're going to look at seven of them. He says, for by it, faith, the people of old received their commendation. Now, what's fascinating about this is that you and I think, or most of us think, that faith is a New Testament concept. And yet faith was required even in the Old Testament. People could not be made right with God by keeping the law. The Bible makes it very clear. I don't want to get in that, into that tonight, but no one, the Israelites included, could not keep the law and become right with God. They could not achieve righteousness through the law. It was impossible. The law was given to show them God's expectations and their inability to keep those expectations. And it set up the coming of the Messiah. And so every one of them, Moses, David, Enoch, Abel, all had to have faith in God. And we'll dig into that even more as we go into it. But faith is an Old Testament concept. It's all throughout the Old Testament. And especially in the lives of these individuals. And so we're going to look at these characters and we're going to see how they lived by faith. And the first one we're going to look at is Abel. 
How did Abel, this man of old, son of Adam and Eve, one of the sons of Adam and Eve, how did he get a commendation from God? And what's it say in verse 4? This is our first character. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, remember the whole chapter is about faith, through his faith, though he died, and we'll find out how he died, he still speaks. How does he speak? By the way he lived his life. How did he live his life? By faith. So what do we do with this? You got to go back to the Old Testament. So flip back to Genesis chapter 4. So we can find out a little bit more about this character, Abel. Now, you guys all know the, the story of the fall. You know that Adam and Eve were created by God. They were put into this incredible garden. Uh, everything was provided for them. Um, they were created without sin. They were created to have perfect fellowship with God. But they also had the ability, the freedom to choose. And God said, you can eat of every tree of the garden, but don't eat of that one. And what did they do? They ate of that one. And they fell. And as a result of the fall, mankind fell. They were cursed. Satan was cursed. And they bore sons. They bore Cain and they bore Abel. And we're going to see in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 4 of Genesis just exactly what happens. It says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived, and she bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. That's going to be important to the story. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So as a result, Cain gets angry, his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, its desires for you, but you must rule over it. So what's going on here? Well, you got these two characters, the two sons, two brothers. Um, they're living post-fall. They're living outside the garden because Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. They can never go back in. They're probably living in pro close proximity to the garden. I believe that they were close enough to see the garden. They probably could see the angel that was guarding the way back into the garden. And I think they probably, as young kids, were probably asking their mom and dad all the time, why can't we go in the garden? Why aren't we living in the garden? Didn't you used to live in the garden? What happened in the garden? How come we're living outside the garden now? Why is that angel standing there with a sword? Why can't we go in the garden? What? And I'm sure they got told by their parents what happened. And yet they're living post-fall. They're contaminated with sin. They have sin natures. And we're going to see very clearly how bad at least one of them had a sin nature. And it says that they brought offerings. Now, it's really interesting as you study this passage, if you, if you look at the commentaries, and I looked at a ton of them, there, there are a lot of commentators who believe this whole story is about the kind of offering that was brought. And they'll, they'll go to great lengths to say, um, one of them brought sheep, and he offered those sheep, which required a blood sacrifice, and one of them bought, brought grain or fruit, some kind of fruit. And it didn't require blood sacrifice, so that's where the problem lies. God had told them, according to these commentators, that it had to be blood. The problem with that is nowhere in this passage does it say that. Nowhere in this passage does it say that God told them to offer any sacrifice. And, and I don't think the passage is about the sacrifice as much as it is about the faith behind the sacrifice. We know in the uh, Levitical system, in the, the, the sacrificial system, that it was appropriate to bring either a lamb, you could bring a dove, you could bring a bull, you could bring grain. Grain and fruit was not an inappropriate sacrifice. So it really has nothing to do, I don't think, with what was brought, it's the heart behind what was brought. It's the motivation of the giver, the sacrificer, not the sacrifice, not the elements. And I think that's going to be important to understanding this passage. And it says that in the course of time, Cain, 
who happened to be a farmer of some kind. It says, Cain brought to the Lord an offering. Nothing wrong with that, right? He's bringing an offering to the Lord. And it's an offering of the fruit of the ground. And that phrase in the course of time really means that it indicates that there was a a timing involved. Somehow they had either gotten into the habit willfully of their own accord to offer sacrifices, and they did it at a certain time every year. Or perhaps God did ask for a sacrifice, but the passage doesn't say. But bottom line is, he brought a sacrifice of the fruit of the ground. And then it tells us that Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portion. And all they're doing is one's a shepherd, he brings sheep. One's a farmer, he brings fruit. And so it doesn't really have anything to do with the quality or the quantity, I don't think. It doesn't have to do with the content. The issue, what's this chapter about? It's about faith. So we got to keep the context. Let's not get hung up on what they brought. Let's keep thinking about faith because it says, by faith, able. So it's all about faith. One gives the firstborn of the flock and of their fat portions. So really what it's telling us is that Abel brought what? Sheep. And, and they were sacrificed. And it says he brought the best of his sheep. So he brings to God, for whatever reason, either God told him or just in his own heart, I want to make an offering to God. Maybe it was to appease God because he knew God was mad at him because they're living outside the garden. And so he brings these sheep and it says it's the best or the fat portions. He brings the best of his flock. Now, when you bring sheep and you sacrifice sheep, what happens to the sheep? They're gone, right? You, you slit their throats, you, you spill the blood, you, you offer them up. And then what do you get to do with those sheep from that point forward? Squat. Nothing. Will you ever get milk from those sheep again? Will you ever eat the meat of those sheep ever again? Will those best sheep, the best of the flock, will they ever breed and give you more sheep? No. So really what to me this passage is telling me is that Abel brought to God the best of what he had and he gave it to God never to get it back again. And he lost something. He lost provision. He lost the thing that would feed his family, provide milk for his children, wool or whatever they did, he lost that because he gave it to God. And in giving it to God and in losing the use of it, what did he have to depend on then? God. His offering was giving to God something that was necessary for life and then basically saying, I'm going to trust you for my provision. I think that's what this is all about. And so what does Cain do? It says Cain brings fruit. Doesn't tell us what. It could have been grain. It could have been dates. It, who knows what it is. But he brings the fruit of the ground. And he gives it to God. Now, what's the difference between bringing the fruit of the ground? Let's say I got an apple tree. And it's got all kinds of apples on it. And I take down 10, 10% of the apples and I bring it to God and I give God the apples. What have I really sacrificed? a few apples because I still got the tree which produces the apples and it's going to produce me more apples and I still have all the rest of the apples on the tree. So what am I really putting my faith in? My tree. But what if I were to cut down the whole tree and give the tree to God along with all of its fruit? Then I'm sacrificing something and I'm putting my faith and trust in God to meet my needs. See, I think, again, this is what this is all about because one of them is commended by God and one is not commended by God. And it all has to do with faith because that's what the entire chapter of this book is about. It's about faith. By faith, Abel brought a sacrifice. And, and if you think about it in your own life, what are things that you've given to God as a sacrifice that really didn't cost you much? Now, I can think over the years, you know, I grew up in a family where tithing was non-negotiable. Even as a kid, you know, if I got allowance, my dad would take out the 10%. And it hacked me. Because I'm like, what if I don't want to give the 10%? Now, I never said that to my dad. But I sure thought it. 
I thought it was voluntary. I thought I'm the one that's supposed to decide if I want to give 10%. And you've already taken it out and you're giving the 10%. And my allowance isn't that big to begin with. But maybe it's your time. Maybe it's something you've given to God, but you really just kind of, you gave it reluctantly. You gave it with your hands still kind of holding on to it. And, and you had other things that you still were holding on to that really were going to be your provider. That's what this is talking about because Cain gives this offering. Why did God reject it? It wasn't because it was grain. It wasn't because it was dates or figs. Or It was because there was something wrong in his heart. There was something wrong with the way he gave this offering to God. His motivation was wrong. And I think he was putting his trust in, I'll give a token to God, but I'm going to really trust in the fruit. That's what's going to really provide for me. And then when he saw God approve his brother and not approve him, he was chapped. His heart was in the wrong place. His brother gets commended as righteous, but he doesn't. And I think it's because his offering was not based on faith. And and what it makes me think about my life is how much do I do for God? How much do I give to God of my time, my resources, whatever? And I really believe, you know what? I'm going to give that to him because he's going to take care of me. You know, when I uh, went to Ethiopia, I really didn't want to go to Ethiopia. Um, I love the people of Ethiopia. I, don't, I just don't like the food or the weather in Ethiopia. I don't like the mosquitoes in Ethiopia. Um, both the food and the mosquitoes make me sick. And so about 13 of the 14 days I, I was there, I was sick. Um, I really didn't want to go, but my wife has a ministry there, and so she was there, and I wanted to see my wife, so I did 21 hours on an airplane to go see my wife and do ministry in Ethiopia. But I really didn't want to be there. And, but I'm thinking, in my, okay, I'll sacrifice. I'll go. I'll do something for God. But I did it with such a really rotten attitude. Because I'm thinking, man, I got so much to do back at home. I got, you know, and right the day before we left, I'm in my bathroom downstairs and there's water coming out of one of the light fixtures. And there's a leak in the upstairs bathroom. I mean, the day before I leave. And I'm like, God, I got so many things to do at home. I got a ministry of my own. I got, I, and I went with a wrong attitude. And God convicted me of that while I was there. But I think, how many times have I done that? How many times have I not gone in faith and just trusted that, God, I'm going to go and you're going to take care of ministry here and you're going to take care of me there. And if I get sick, I get sick. Everything's going to work out okay. I'm going to trust you. I think the issue in this passage is that Cain did not have faith in God. Because if you look at, it's interesting, 1 John 3.12, listen to what it says. The Apostle John writes, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Now, listen to this real carefully. And why did he murder him? Now, I'm thinking murder is pretty bad. But he's going to basically tell you and I, murder wasn't the issue. Because he says, why did he murder his brother? Because his own deeds, Cain's own deeds were evil. And his brothers were righteous. What's that talking about? His sacrifice, his offering, his heart, his motivation. His deeds were evil. His heart was evil. He didn't do it with the right heart. He didn't do it in faith. And why do I believe that? Because what does God say to him? What does he say to him in verse 6 and 7? He says, Cain, why are you angry? I love this about God. It's just like when Adam and Eve sinned and uh, he finds them, God finds them. He goes, uh, what, what, what's going on? What happened? Did God not know what happened? Yeah, he knew. Did he not know what Cain had done? He says, why are you angry? Why is your face falling? He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you, but you must rule over it. He's telling them, if you do well, what's he talking about? I think if you do this by faith, if you trust me, if you live by faith, put your faith in me that I'm your provider, I will take care of you. It will do well for you. It will go well for you. But if you don't, 
If you don't live by faith, guess what? Sin is crouching at the door. And what was about to happen? He was going to kill his brother, commit the first murder. And it would condemn him for life. See, here's what I believe about Cain. I think Cain wanted more crops because what does every man who's ever breathed a breath want? More. It, It doesn't matter. More of anything. More sex. More esteem. More money. More cars. Bigger house. We all want more. <laughs> I think he wanted more. I think he wanted more crops. I think he wanted more fruit. I think he wanted success. I think he wanted a whole lot of stuff. And he's afraid that if I give it to God, I'm losing my stuff. So he gave it reluctantly, thinking that however much it was 10%, 20%, 3 this is now something I can't use because God has it. And that's the problem with many of our, <coughs> our lives, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> when it comes to faith. Rather than trust God, he chose to trust in what? <coughs> Himself. His own ability to grow fruit, produce crops. <coughs> and God's saying, trust me. <coughs> do, do well. Do the right thing. And his offering, I think, was really, at the end of the day, not a sacrifice. And it required no dependence upon God. But Abel, what did he do? He gave the sheep, lost the sheep. They were gone forever. No more food, no more milk, no more wool, no more anything. (coughs) Because I'm going to trust God. (coughs) And I'm going to see him in just a minute. (coughs) I'll tell you how it is when I get there. So what's, what's the difference between these two guys? I think the difference is faith. Abel's faith was in a God who made the flock. Cain was in fruit and his own ability to grow it. See, guys, what's your faith in today? What what are you putting faith in? Um, There's a lot of smart men in this room. There's a lot of successful men in this room. Um, But if you're a believer in Christ, if you really believe in God, you believe he's the creator of everything, you believe that he he wants to bless you and he's got great things in store for you, you've got to stop believing in you and your ability to produce and your ability to do great things, either for God or for yourself. You've got to trust God because I think that's what Abel did and it's what Cain couldn't do. He just couldn't bring himself to trust God. I think in a way what he was saying, it's like he brought his fruit to God and said, look what I've done. Look what I've produced. God, you should be pretty, pretty proud of this. I'm giving you some of my product. But you know what? God doesn't need any of my product. God didn't need me to go to Ethiopia and minister to those pastors. I think half of them were, were confused because of everything that got lost in translation. But God allowed me to go, and I was blessed by it just to get to meet these men and see them minister in ways that I don't have to minister in context. I don't have to minister. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need your fruit. God doesn't need to be impressed with what you do. What you need to do is come to God, just like Abel, and you need to say, you know what? I'm giving this to you because you gave it to me. And at the end of the day, God, you're my, you're my provider. You're going to meet every need that I have. So Abel, for me, is a picture of how I should live my life, how you should live your life. And really the question for me, the question for you is, what are you putting your faith in? And and I know whether you want to admit it or not, you're putting your faith in your intelligence, you're putting your faith in your, your bank account, you're putting your faith in your career. Um, and God's basically telling you and I, no, put it in me. Because all of that could be gone in a New York minute. You could lose it all. You could lose your health that quickly. And so where's your faith? What are you putting your faith in? And so what I want you guys to talk about around the tables, and I've given you more than enough questions, you can cherry pick. You can pick the one you want to talk about. But I want you to wrestle with faith. 
The first one is go back and look at the description of faith found in verse 1. When it comes to living your life by faith, what are some areas where you lack assurance and conviction? Where do you struggle with trusting God? Where do you struggle with... When he says, I will meet your needs, what do you struggle with? Well, God, I don't know that you know my needs the way I know my needs. Because, see, I need to have that car. Or I need to have that promotion, and you haven't given it to me, so I'm going to go get it myself. Isn't that exactly what Abraham did with Sarah and the handmaiden? God, you've said you're going to bless me and give me, make me a father of a multitude of nations. You haven't done it yet, and you don't seem to understand. I'm old, she's barren, so we're going to come up with a better plan. God does not need your better plan. What God wants is you to trust him. And so what I want you to do as you, as you talk through these and discuss them, I just want you to be honest with one another and share where you struggle in your faith. Because here's what I know from having studied this passage now for several months is that we have been called to live by faith, to walk by faith, to have endurance in faith for how long? Until the Lord returns or he takes you home. And where you and I struggle the most is we fail to live by faith. We live by sight. We live by what we can see. And what I love about every one of these characters is they trusted God. They took him at his word and they lived their lives according to faith. And what it's going to tell us later on is that none of them ever really got to see the fulfillment of the promise of God. But they kept trusting They kept trusting. So let me pray for you, and then you're going to spend some time around the tables, and when you've exhausted your discussion or you've irritated one another enough, you're free to leave. But let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for these men. I thank you for them coming out on a Thursday night in the middle of the summer, being willing to look at this passage, talk to one another about it. And I pray, you, Father, that your Holy Spirit would move in this room tonight, that we would be honest, first of all, with ourselves, second of all, with you, And then with one another about where we really are when it comes to this issue of faith. I have used that word so often in my life and never really lived it the way I think you want it to be lived. Trusting you for every area of my life that you will come through, that your promises are sure. Father, I want to be a man of faith. I want it to be able to be said of me at my funeral that he lived by faith. He was a man of faith. And I pray that would be true of every man in this room. So bless the time around the tables. And I pray that guys would get to know each other well and get to know themselves even better than they know themselves right now. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You guys have fun.